want to talk to you tonight about the power of one, the, the influence, the uh, amazing ability that just something singular has. And as I was preparing my own heart, it just e immediately popped into my mind another passage of scripture, a thought that I think kind of goes along with this. In the book of James, uh, chapter 3, we have the, the warning about the power of the tongue, right? And I was just thinking, what a wonderful time we have uh, tonight and often on Sunday nights during the testimony time and different tongues that are giving blessings, right? Testimonies and blessings. And, you know, if, if everybody had shared a blessing, you know, which would have been fine, uh, what a great thing that is. But all it would take is one person maybe saying one sentence that is sinful to really put a, kind of an eclipse on all the good things that are said. You ever notice how that works? I mean, you can get compliments, you can get encouragement, and then someone comes along and says something that's uh, very discouraging, very negative, very derogatory. And, and what do you do? Do you hang on all those blessings and encouragements? No, we tend to fixate on the one bad thing that's there. And you could have a whole host of Tongues saying the right thing. If you have one, and, uh, and, and James talks about that, you know, it's a little member, but yet it boasts great things. It's very, very powerful. So there's so many different ways that we can apply this concept of the power of one. But I want us to think tonight specifically about our, our role as individuals in feeling the weight of individual responsibility in the body of Christ. Uh, I think that that's definitely uh, part of why the Holy Spirit has placed this text in our Bibles for us. Uh, the story here, just to recount there in Joshua 7, what we've read, uh, there was this very probably brief moment where Achan is tempted. We can't really tell from the text for sure, but it almost implies that he came across this stash of stuff, and all of those items that he ends up taking were right there together. Maybe it was the single belongings of, of one household, as opposed to maybe him finding some here, some there. Uh, just the way the grammar is written there kind of gives that indication. But, and, and so there was just maybe this one single moment of weakness, and he makes this decision. And he probably wasn't thinking at that moment, well, I wonder if I do this, how it would affect everybody else around me. That was probably something he was oblivious to. At the very least, he was careless. And, and sinful behavior is careless. It's very, very selfish what's going on here. But what sin isn't selfish? By, by nature, if we sin, we are thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. We want what we want as opposed to what God wants or what, how it's going to adversely affect everybody else around us. So uh, we might not think of ourselves when we think of ourselves as sinners as being intrinsically selfish, but every time we sin, there is a seed of selfishness there. It's easy to see it in, a, in, a, in an account like this, right? You think, how selfish can one guy be? Well, you see that especially when you see the consequences of what happened. But did Achan know that that was what was going to happen to Israel because he did that? I dare say he didn't. Right. Never crossed his mind. 
He never thought, if I take these things, you know, we're going to lose our next battle. Some of my friends are going to be killed in that battle. That didn't, there's no reason to believe that that would have entered his mind whatsoever. But that's also the deceptiveness of sin when we're tempted, that we block out, we don't go down that road of thinking of all the possible negative consequences of our sin. Our flesh and the tempter himself has a way of minimizing those things. It's not going to be that big of a deal, right? That's the way he handled it in the Garden of Eden. You know, the uh, Satan showing up there and, and tempting Adam and Eve there, or Eve there, was simply a, a reminder to us that, oh, you know, God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes will be open. You know, he's not thinking, now you need to consider the pros and cons of your choices here. That's not how it works when we're tempted to sin. We only see the glitzy, encouraging side to do what's wrong. And so, therefore, we need to be very prudent. We need to be very discerning about the moments of temptation when we face them, whatever they might be, and, and count the cost. In other words, if, if I do this, if I go into this, this choice, am I breaking God's law? What are the consequences of doing that? The story of Adam and Eve, of course, goes from, uh, and, and is set out at the beginning of our Bibles, I think, for a reason, not just because chrono chronologically it's one of the first things that happened, but as a warning to us as human beings. Look, you can go from paradise, you can go from bliss to absolute loss because of a bad choice. And, and while Eve didn't, just like Achan, Probably there's no reason to believe she thought, now, if I do this, I might be impacting all humanity that comes after me. Probably didn't think that. Satan wouldn't have wanted that, that thought to have entered her mind to weigh that heavily. And yet that's exactly what, what happens here. All humanity, all creation is affected by the power of that one woman's decision and Adam's subsequent decision uh, with her. But now we see a nation of hundreds of thousands that seem to be obedient. I mean, let, let's think about it in the sense of, uh, you know, how many are doing right, how many are doing wrong? Well, in the account, it doesn't mean everybody was sinless, but there's only one guy that's put in the spotlight as doing something wrong here, just Achan. And it, it's, it's clear that the Bible is suggesting the only reason the defeat of Ai happens is because of him and what he does. Now, in fairness, God had been very clear. Don't take anything that is in Jericho. In our King James Bible, it talks about the accursed thing. And why is it called accursed? Was it somehow jinxed? Uh, did it have some sort of, you know, hokey curse on it type thing. No, that's not the idea here. The, the word behind it literally means devoted to God. In other words, God says, this is for me and me only, hands off. Hands off. And in that way, it, it's accursed. It's not, it doesn't belong to us. It shouldn't be considered as a possibility. It's the Lord's. Can you imagine in your mind thinking, I'm going to sneak into the temple and steal the lampstand, I'm going to steal the Ark of the Covenant, you'd be like, whoa, that's pretty brazen. But while we would say, I would never go there, I would never be so bold or so brash, are there other things that really are God's 
and God has set boundaries, and yet we might still somehow rationalize stepping over and putting our hands on those things in ways that God has told us not to in our life. All it takes is one disobedient, as we see in this account here. Hundreds of thousands doing what was right, one guy disobeyed, and it affected everybody else. Definitely we see the power of one. And so, what happens when just one person is disobedient? What happens, according to this text? Well, first of all, when one is disobedient, he is often supported by his own reasoning and rationale. It's, it's a, it seems logical. And if something seems logical, you can therefore come to a place where you say, it feels right. You know, you can reason through a lot of really bad, sinful choices. In fact, I've rarely talked to someone that I've counseled with that has made some sort of unbiblical decision in their life where they don't have a response for me where they're explaining, yes, I know what the Bible says, Pastor, about the permanency of marriage, but let me tell you about my situation. And they begin to rationalize you know, what's going on in their life and in their relationship and in their circumstances. And while they wouldn't say it, it's like, I believe I'm an exception to God's rules. Essentially, that's what they're arguing. And so, obviously, Achan somehow came to this point where he looked at this. We don't know what he might have uh, told himself as to why, well, you know, I can put my kids through college with what's here. You know, uh, nobody else is taking anything, so, you know, it seems a shame that it just gets left behind. I mean, it's not like God's going to miraculously transfer it up to heaven, you know. Probably just going to get buried here. Probably some marauders are going to come through after we're gone and start digging through the city and find it. And, you know, they might even take it to worship a false pagan god. You know, who knows what was going through Achan's mind. But he was able to bring himself to a place where he could feel good about disobeying God. I, I underline in verse 21 several different actions that, that Achan point, and he lists really four things here in verse 21. He says at the beginning, I saw. Secondly, about halfway through the verse, it says, I coveted. And then it says, I took them. And then fourthly, I hid them. There's a progression there, isn't there? And we need to understand this progression so that we can be on the alert when we are tempted with things. The, the last word, hid, is in the passive voice. What does that mean? It's, it would be like him saying, um, he, he, sh he should have said, I, I am hiding, you know, uh, instead of saying, it was hid. What it, what's true is I am currently still hiding it. It's you know it's still there. Not, not, this isn't just something I did. This is something technically he's still doing. Now it's been uncovered at this point. So he's not really being honest yet, right? We need to understand that he's he's been caught. And there's a big difference of someone owning up to something and repenting on the front side of something. 
But what we didn't read was there was a narrowing down as they cast lots, starting at, at the larger tribe and going down through the families, and then it just landed finally on Achan. And then he's like, oh, yes, I confess. That's no confession, right? <laughs> you know, the spotlight had pointed him out. He had nowhere to go. The first exposure that's mentioned here is the idea of, I saw. He's walking along, you know, he stops, whatever, maybe takes time to wipe his brow in the chasing of the inhabitants of Jericho. However it is, he finds himself and, he, and his eyes catch a glimpse of this booty. Now the, the question is, is it wrong? Is he sinning at this point that his eyes fell upon the idols? Quiet stills the audience, right? This is, not, this is not a challenging question. Is it wrong that his eyes fell upon what was there? No. So is he sinning at step one? He's not sinning at step one. Okay? And we need to be reminded of this because you know what? Our eyes... Our ears, our senses are subjected to lots of things in daily life that can potentially lead us down a path of sinful choices. But the simple exposure to it is not necessarily in and of itself a sin. We, we can't control some of those things. Even a thought that might pop into your head. It's like, whoa, where did that come from, right? You know. But what you do next... It's always step two, right? It's always step two that really is the crux here. And what he did at step two was coveting. Now, here we, here we are. Seeing something is outward. It's visual, but it's not wrong. At step two, he's doing something wrong. How do we know it's wrong? Tenth commandment, right? Thou shalt not what? So he's... he's He's at least owning up to describing what's going on in his life accurately here. I, I coveted it. I saw it. And so there's a little bit of meditation going on, a sinful meditation of, you know, how could this better me? How could this better my family? Whatever. You know, sometimes we, we try to look at a scenario in the Bible or even in our natural lives currently and say, where does sin actually happen? And maybe as you have read the story of Achan in the past, you've thought, you know, when he was stuffing it under his tent, he was sinning. And I would contend with you, sin happened long before then, right? That was just many steps afterwards. And I think it's very important that as we read Bible accounts, we stop and say, okay, where is sin happening here? You know, the question might be, for Eve even, where did sin happen? Was it when she went, you know, into that fruit? Or was it in her heart when she made the decision, I'm going to bite the fruit? See? So sin becomes, first of all, very internal. It's a, it's a spiritual thing more than it is an action. And the action then follows what's going on. You, you can sin without ever moving one iota without batting an eye. You can just, in your mind, right? We can, we can commit sin. And because he coveted, because he didn't guard his heart there, therefore the next 
action was that he took it. In other words, I talked myself into why it's good for me to have this and to fulfill my desires, so therefore, here it goes. But because he knew, he knew enough that it was wrong and that there would be consequences, he covered it up. And yet, again, a lot of times people think of it's that hiding, it's that burying under his tent. That's where he sinned. No. He sinned long before he ever got back to his tent, before he ever even picked it up and scooped it up in his arms. He had scooped it up in his heart. This teaches us something about temptation and sin, right? And James warns us about this. In James 1.14, he says, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. And we hear the word lust. Lust has a bad connotation to it, right? It just sounds bad. Lust. But the word lust, the, the Greek word behind it, just simply means desire. The word by itself, depending on the context, could be a good desire, could be a desire for the Lord. That same Greek word is used sometimes to talk about our desire for the Lord. But the idea here is it all begins with our innate personal desires. I have desires, you have desires. All humans have desires. It's kind of our programming, right? Now, all of our desires may not be equal. For instance, there may be a day that, you know, I might be struggling and be tempted with, you know, maybe one more cup of coffee than I feel like the Holy Spirit would have me to have. My wife will never struggle with that, you know, because she doesn't care for coffee. But you get my point, right? And there, and there are some things that, you know, I mean, I had a friend in college, and he really struggled with certain percussive instrument music and stuff like that. And to me, it was just noise and annoying. But for him, it was, it was an attractive thing, right? Well, what's going on there? I have my innate desires. He has his. You have yours. Step one, know what your desires are. Know what your appetites are. Know what you are, are, what appeals to you, okay? So that you can be on guard about those things in your life. So James says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away. It's the drawing away of the desires that's the problem. And enticed. That's where the problem is. Achan got into the step of coveting, step two. That's where he was sinning. He was violating that tenth commandment. Nothing was done outwardly, but the desiring for and the planning to get that which God had forbade was itself a sin. You know, David broke God's law in the story of Bathsheba. If I ask you, it says, okay, where is the sin with Bathsheba? And someone might say, when he committed adultery, he pulled her into bed with him. And, and you're already getting it, right? That's not where the sin was that was sinful but we're talking about where the moment of sin began and when was it it was when he was walking on the roof and he looked over and it wasn't that he caught a glimpse of her it's what he did in his heart with that look afterwards he lusted after her and then he just like Achan took and just like Achan he also hid things didn't he See the parallels there? That, that little system, that little steppage is what happens in sin. We see we're, we're, uh, 
confronted with the opportunity. We're enticed. And then we decide, do I indulge? Do I think about this? Do I take it into my heart? And then do I act upon it? So we need to recognize that. By the way, had he not taken it, but only coveted while he was standing there, would that still have been sinful for him? And the answer is yes, that he's still coveting. He's still breaking the Tenth Commandment. Now, the consequences of what happens here, of not actually taking it, wouldn't have resulted in what happens here in, in chapter 7 as far as the defeat of Ai, because he wouldn't have taken it and hid it under his tent. He still would have needed to confess what he had done. Lord, I shouldn't have even stood there and just imagined and thought about it and wanting that like I should have. I mean, that needed would have needed to be confessed to God, right? Because that in of itself is sin. You know, a solitary individual can rationalize the direction of the flesh very easily. Satan appears to be very good at aiding in this process, right? For instance, he is suggestive where to uh, help Eve uh, in eating the forbidden fruit. Let me help you rationalize this, Eve, right? That's what he's doing there. King Saul is another example, just again to pull up another account in Scripture. And, you, and in this particular case, you know, there's the, the, the attack uh, on the enemy. God's told him, you know, don't, don't keep anything. But what does Saul do? He keeps the animals, right? And he keeps the king, King Agag. And when Samuel shows up and he, and he hears, you know, what's, you know, these, these animal noises, is what meaneth the, the bleeding of sheep in my ears? You know, why do I hear this going on? And, and I've often thought about that. Were there, would there have been no other animals around in this scene that he would have automatically known? Or, or maybe God gave the prophet Samuel a little bit of insight about what was happening here, which is what I believe. And he was pinpointing in kind of an indirect way to see what Saul would do. Will he come clean? Did he come clean? No. What did he do? He tried to exalt his actions. Well, you know, uh, I thought it would be good to take some of these animals to sacrifice to God. Yes, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice to God. And Samuel cuts through all of the murkiness of this rhetoric. You know, Saul's such a politician, right? He is spinning it. He is spinning it. And, and Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. Just plain and simple. So, you know, you think sacrificing to God is a great thing. There's nothing wrong with sacrificing. But you had to disobey God in order to sacrifice the way you're planning to do it. And you know what? I'm thinking, was he really planning to sacrifice or was that just, you know, the line that he's giving Samuel in this case? No doubt Achan thought to himself that he could better his family, that maybe he could help out his neighbor with some needs with this. You know, I'll pull a little bit out later, you know, when there's needs there. You know, I'm going to be a giving person with this. Maybe the garment was going to be a, a gift to his daughter, you know, part of her dowry or something. Who knows? But it really doesn't matter because in all of this, reasoning and rationale should never go above the clarity of what God's word teaches us. God says it, stop thinking about it, stop rationalizing it, just simply 
obey. Because your intelligence and your rationale will sometimes often lead you awry. Secondly, something else that's true of this is that a larger group is often affected adversely. Even though only Achan disobeyed, God said, and notice this, the children of Israel, right? Verse 1 started off, but the children of Israel committed a trespass. You're like, wait a minute. The children of Israel? As I read this, I only heard about one guy messing up, Achan. Why is he saying the children of Israel? And that's because they were a collective congregation. God had given directions and guidance to all of them. For one of them to disobey impacted everybody. Kind of reminds us of the church, right? We're members in you know, particular, but we're part of the body. There is a continuity, just like the anatomy of our physical bodies. And so just like it says in Corinthians, you know, if if the you know if the hand is hurting, the whole body feels it, right? You know, it reverberates through. So it's part of the teaching that's going on here, how God is dealing with it and presenting it. So God's anger is not just against Achan. God's anger is against the congregation that Achan is a part of. Maybe you're struggling with the idea of fairness right now, right? You know, we don't want to say it like, God, that sounds a little unfair. But we need to define our sense of fairness based on how God reveals truth to us, not based on our human perceptions of things. And there's some other things that come into play here that aren't said, and we have to be careful about speculating from silence here. But how did they uh, get into the position in chapter uh, 7 where they're attacking AI? Uh, were, was there any kind of, of rashness? Were they, did they have a prayer meeting? And, and did Joshua seek God's face and say, Now, Lord, we're getting ready to attack another city. You know, should we go? Uh, there doesn't seem to be any indication that, uh, th that there is a consulting and a humility of God in all of this before the devastation of the defeat of these men that are killed in verse 5, these, these 36 individuals that are here. So there's casualties here. The 36 men have lost their lives. There are different analogies in the Bible for believers, sometimes as believers we're compared to sheep, right? A flock, John chapter 10. When one sheep strays, it's unfortunate, but the fold is not adversely affected necessarily. We're also compared to clay pots in Romans 9, 21. And although some are lesser honorable, it does not seem to impact those that are honorable. You know, if there's one that's messed up or cracked, and, you know, some of us are like, yeah, I know some cracked pots. You know, that's not <laughs> what I'm referring to here. Um, and you think, that's how I typically think. You know, one, one messes up and the others are still okay. But there are some group analogies that speak to the impact that the smaller has on the larger. For instance, a harvest is sometimes ruined if the wheat is commingled with the tares. Remember Matthew 13, you know, and there was this concern because uh, you had this, uh, the, these weeds that if they were to mixed, be mixed in would ruin the good harvest that's there. 
And so that was a problem. It wasn't that the wheat itself was bad. It's what you would add to it that would be a problem. We've talked about human anatomy, you know, being an example of all this. Uh, one commentator said this on this topic. He says, I do not know why it is that by the constitution of the universe, evil has so much more power than good to produce its effect and to propagate its nature. One drop of foul will pollute a whole cup of fair water. Right? I mean, you can, you can have a, a gallon and you just put one little drop of arsenic in there, you know, and think, well, it's mostly good, right? I dare say if we're wise, we would be avoiding that. One drop of fair water has no power to appreciably improve a cup of foul. In other words, you know, you've got, you know, a, a gallon of sewage, and here's one drop of pure, clear, filtered water. And it's like, no, thank you. That's not going to change my opinion. Sharp pain, he goes on to say, present in a tooth or a toe will make the whole man miserable, though all the rest of his body be easy. But it, if all the rest of the body be suffering, an easy tooth or toe will cause no perceptible alleviation. You know, I'm hurting everywhere, but my tooth is good, right? That's not going to be a comfort to you. Good analogies for us, right, to understand here the, the influence of one, the minuscule here. Remember coming across an article several years ago about the banyan tree, indigenous more to like Africa, and uh, it had a picture in the article, and the seed of the banyan tree was somehow probably by a bird that had it on its claw or something like that. They don't really know how it happened, but the seed was dropped into the, the fork of a branch of another tree, of a different kind of tree by a bird. And the seed was able to sprout in the crook of that branch. And it produced long roots that came down and you know, was seeking its nourishment in the ground. So in the picture, I remember it showing it coming down along this and totally encompassing the, the, the trunk of the other tree. And after coming in contact with the soil, the roots became very strong for the banyan tree. It multiplied, it intertwined, it fused together, forming a tight net. And with all that happening, guess what happened to the, the, tr the host tree? It died. It withered up. It couldn't handle being so encumbered by this banyan tree. It was choking it, robbing the victim tree of the light that it needed. And by the time the trunk of the victim tree uh, decomposed, the banyan had gained enough strength to stand by itself. Say, so what is the point of that? The idea is that there, there can be something very small a seed of something very small, an action, an attitude, if it's given proper footing and nourished and allowed to grow, it can overtake. I've seen churches, congregations that have been, been ruined by a seed of bitterness, a seed of deception, a, a seed of selfishness, whatever it might be. And it may be starting off seem like, well, it's just one person, it's just one issue. We need to have our cautions up, folks, but especially with regard to our own souls. When there was 
public or and and yet unrepentant sin in the church in the book of Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about this. There was a sexual sin issue going on. And, and Paul writes and says, listen, you folks are not handling this properly. You're just kind of sweeping it under the rug. And, you know, you're, you're kind of rejoicing that you're accommodating these people and their sinful sexual behavior. He says, in this rejoicing, it's not good. What you're doing is not healthy. But then Paul uses another imagery that I think is helpful about something small that can be very pervasive. And you might remember this. It's the idea of how bread works, specifically yeast. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, he says, Know ye not that a little leaven does what? Leaven up the whole lump. Just a little bit. And, And it really does just take a very minuscule amount of leaven for it to go throughout. So what is the answer? Purge out, he goes on to say in verse 7, purge out therefore the old leaven (coughs) that ye may be a new lump. There's only one answer. You've got to be involved in the removal of these very small influences. If you let it go unchecked, and what can that leaven be? Well, in, in the context of 1 Corinthians 5, what was it? It was sinful people in the church. And he was advocating, if they're not going to repent, then for the sake of the health of the congregation, you need to remove them. Ultimately, also so that they will see the seriousness of what's going on, that you're not just saying, well, we love you, you know, it's okay. We'll just, you know, hope that God teaches you somehow. No, be very proactive about this so that they'll realize it's serious and they'll repent. But imagine if you didn't do that, what, is the, what do the young people in the church think about this? Well, they're doing this, and nothing seems to be happening, and you know they're just kind of okay with it, so maybe it's okay for me to do it, right? And there's that influence that spreads. We need to be vocal. We need to be very clear about the dangers of sin, even in small instances or singular instances. Thirdly, we see from this story that that which should be simple, becomes difficult. There's an advanced party that reported that the city of Ai seemed to be a pushover uh, in verse 2. The men go out, you know, come back and after they had, had viewed the city. Um, they only ended up taking a small army. Uh, they said, you know, hey, we don't, we don't need to bother the entire encampment, you know. I mean, we... This, this is going to be a pushover compared to what Jericho was. Uh, the butterflies in their stomach, the weak knees they, that they might have had at Jericho don't appear to be present here. It's not, not an issue, you know. Uh, I'm sure they were very intimidated at Jericho, right? I mean, first battle, very intimidating, pregnable walls. Now AI's like, oh, well, if we can handle Jericho, we can handle AI. God had warned his people about the need for numbers when it comes to going on the attack and how that they would think. He didn't want them to necessarily be thinking that if you're going to go up against huge numbers, you need huge numbers. Because God's in the equation, in other words. So everything changes. So in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 3, God had told his his people, that if 
quote, if you keep my commandments and do them, okay, so that's the qualification, you need to be obedient. And you need to be meticulous about what I say. Well, what will be the blessing? What will come from that? One of the things he says, five of you shall chase an hundred. And then he says, a hundred shall chase 10,000, right? I mean, in other words, you don't need very many people, not because you're great warriors, but because of my divine work alongside of you. So don't let the size, don't let the number of your army keep you from being obedient to go out and fight, was the idea. So we need to keep in mind that this may not be a sinful response by these people in verse 2 by saying, we don't need the whole crowd. Maybe it was a step of faith in believing what God had said and saying, yeah, you know, uh, just a few of us can handle a lot of them because we have God on our side. Okay? In other words, as remarkable as God's assistance is when we are obedient, though, there is also a huge problem with the absence of his divine assistance and what devastation comes in a greater degree because in that same text of Leviticus 26, verse 17, he says, if you don't obey my commandments, okay, if you don't hearken to what I've said, I will set my face against you, and ye shall flee when no man pursues you. And I mean, there won't be anybody there, but you'll still be running scared. So God really wants them to believe what? I need to be obedient to what God tells me. I need to be cautious about what God instructs me to do. That's what he wanted them to walk away with. We cannot reason, well, I know that God has blessed and strengthened me in amazing ways in the past, and when I was yielded to him, however, I think I will settle for just maybe a normal life without his enhancements if it means I do not have to yield myself completely to him. I find people that sometimes think this way as, as Christians. In other words, it's like, yeah, I know that, that God did amazing things when I was yielded to him, and, you know, and, and yet... As I think back on that right now, to continue doing that, that, that seems strenuous, it seems taxing in some ways. So, you know, I would like just to kind of dial it back a little bit. And, and maybe I would like, and, and the, whatever word we would choose to use, but I'll use the word normal because I think that's the way sometimes people think. I'll just live an average Christian life, a normal Christian life. Don't need to live an exceptional Christian life. I don't need to be having Jerichos all the time, right? I just, just want to... Get along, right? But there isn't such a thing as a middle ground like that. There's, there's either believing and trusting and obeying God, whatever he leads you to do, whether it's a Jericho or something else, or there is the disobeying God and ignoring what he says to do. There, there's not a compromising with God and saying, I just want to kind of have a plateau, a placidness here. Think about Lot's decision. He could have said, well, I'm just doing a normal relocation of my family. You know, I am you know, just want to have a moderate, happy, well-adjusted family life. You know, earn a good living. You know, my wife can do some shopping in a, you know, public area where the markets are good, the schools are, you know, good, whatever what his reasoning was. You know, all it says, he looked up and saw the well-watered plains 
you know, in that direction. So he wasn't making a decision, I want to walk away from God at that point in his life. He wasn't thinking that way. In fact, the Bible even later describes him as a just, righteous man, you know. He made bad decisions, but he was still a, a man of faith in that way. But he was trying to do what? Maybe dial it back and say, I just, I just want to get along in this world, you know, not trying to be exceptional, you know, this great hero of the faith or anything like that. But in doing so, he made the only other choice, and that was to walk away from God. And what happened as a result of that one man's decision? It affected his whole family, didn't it? And it only affected his family, but remember that the, the, the children that he ends up uh, fathering through incest with his daughters end up being a real problem for the nation of Israel for many centuries to come. You know, say, well, if this was Lot, he would say, how would I have any way of knowing that would happen? And the answer is you won't. And that is the point. We don't know how bad things can get when we make simple decisions not just to obey God in our life. Say, well, I'm just one person. Hopefully we've seen enough illustrations here of this, the problems that can arise from single little minuscule events by one person such as Achan. Lastly, we see the power of one, the problems, is that the people are stupefied. I mean, can you imagine being in the army and, and running away from AI that day and thinking, what in the world just happened here? You're questioning God at this point, aren't you? I think I would be. It's like, wait, Lord, <laughs> you know? I mean, this is only battle number two. Where were you? Why didn't you show up? Why did you abandon us? You know, after the army suffered an embarrassing defeat and were chased away, it says in verse 5, the hearts of the people melted. This was a national response. I mean, they're sitting around talking about this. And, and they're not coming up with answers. And the only thing that they can think is God let them down. Every ounce of confidence that they had gained from Jericho is now drained from them, right? They're not thinking, well, let's not be too hard on God. After all, Jericho was great, wasn't it? I'm not sure that that would be the conversation. Joshua went to the tabernacle, and, and this is where we really see it, the leader, right? This is where all the pressure falls. He goes into the tabernacle in verses 6 and 7. He falls on his face. He tears his clothes. And what is he doing? He's seeking answers from God. God, what happened? He is serious about this. He is moved about this. He's wondering what this, what this means going forward. If you look down at verse 9, he says, um, For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy, what wilt thou do unto thy great name? He's already projecting ahead, right? And thinking, if this is what's happening today, we're in trouble moving forward. When word gets out, the enemy, the word environ, by the way, means to encircle us. They're going to surround us and they're going to wipe us out. For a time, God's people may be in the dark. And Joshua is in the dark right now, isn't he? He doesn't yet know what's happening here. And doesn't this happen to you and I sometimes? We pray and like, Lord, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why is this going on in my family? Why is this happening, you know, in our country? Why is this, 
and we ask these questions, right? And I'm not sure that it's wrong because we see in the Bible God's people asking these questions. I think God wants us to come to him with a, with a spirit of seeking his face, not to challenge him, but because we really want truth and we want guidance in our lives. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times we're probably like Joshua here where we're presuming certain things. In other words, he didn't just come and say, Lord, did I miss something here? Because I know that you couldn't have let us down, right? That, that really, if we could rewrite the story as to what his right response should be, it should have been something like that. And yet they're in the dark. Achan could hear perhaps the discussions of dismayed Israelites. I mean, he's in the camp, right? He's keeping a low profile probably. He's hearing his neighbors in the next tent over talking. Maybe he's hearing the morning of widows yelling out, crying, and writhing on the ground, and widows of those 36 men that lost their lives. And you know what? We get to heaven and find out, you know, was Achan friends with any of those 36? Was he closely associated with them? At this point, he, only he and God know the real reason for what happened in Ai. He knows it, and he knows that God knows it. Nobody else knows it. Did those thoughts gnaw at his spirit? You know, is he, is he having a hard time doing anything else? Is he losing his appetite? Did, did he not initiate confession because he was too proud and afraid to face the shame? Did he think, maybe I won't get discovered? Maybe my sin won't find me out? You know, I, I find myself thinking about another scene in Scripture in the New Testament. It's the, the table of the Lord before he goes to Calvary. The men are around the table, right? Jesus knows what's going to befall him. Nobody else really knows what's going on, but Jesus knows what's going to happen exactly to the, to the letter. And in that scene, he announces to the group, and, may, and, and I get the idea that he, he doesn't let his eyes fall on anyone in particular. Maybe he just kind of scans as he says this. So he looks at everybody, and he says this, one of you will betray me. And, and why do I say that it may have happened that way? Because they're all questioning. Is, is it I? Am I going to be the one? You know? I mean, and, and nobody looked and said, my money's on Judas, right? <laughs> my money's on Judas. And he was the least likely one they suspected. He was the most trusted. He was the bearer of the bag, remember? And so here this is going on. They're, they're, they're questioning this. And, you know, perhaps you've listened to discussions of dismayed believers puzzled at God's lack of blessing in their lives and thought to yourself, you know, am, am I somehow a cause of that? Am, am I somehow, you know, contributing to the problems in this church? Or am I, is, is something that I've done? By the way, folks, is it wrong for us to do that self-inspection and say in prayer to God, is it I? I think the answer is no. That's a, that's a good, humble attitude of meekness to say, Lord, search me, right? David said, search me, O God. Try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me. Why would you do that? Because you know that as a human being, we can become self-deluded. We 
think we're okay when we're not okay. And we've begun to learn that about ourselves. So we say, God, I need you to step in and slap me around a little bit and saying, look here, guy. Look at this area of your life. And we ought to have that, that openness to inspection by God and want that so that we can confess and forsake. You say, I'm, I'm just one person. Well, you know what? We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to when it comes to what we can accomplish in the idea of good. But we better never undersell how devastating we can be in the undermining of what God is doing by our bad actions. See, that would be Satan giving us false humility to say, you're not that important. Your actions, your behavior is never going to affect Anchor Baptist Church. Your decisions and choices aren't going to have an adverse effect on what Jesus is doing in the community of Little River. You're just, you're just one person, right? And that sounds a lot like humility, but it's not. It's actually pride. It's actually the reverse. Because you're trying to think of yourself highly by giving yourself a pass to do what you want to do. And so we need to be discerning. We need to be wise. We need to be guarded. Because we never know when we're going to walk by and see a pile of stuff that God is saying to us, that's not for you. That's not for you. Don't spend time thinking about it. Don't covet it. Don't let yourself get to steps three and four. Realize sake of Jesus Christ and his church and for all that he is doing we need to take responsibility for our own actions and we need God's grace to help us to trust and obey Amen. Father in heaven thank you for your word Lord we are tempted we are frail we thank you that you know our frame that we're dust Lord we we need to be walking circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We need to not let down our guard and be lackadaisical. We need to recognize that spiritual warfare presents itself to us potentially daily, throughout the day. We need to not somehow brush it aside thinking that, well, this is just wild thinking on my part. It's no big deal. Lord, where it comes to your honor and obeying you and trusting you and having faith in you, we need to label it very descriptively, honestly, and we need to take it seriously in our lives. Lord, help us to have a conscience that is aided and supported by the Holy Spirit. May we not quench his work in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, may we welcome those alarms that go off so that we might continue to walk by faith and not by sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.